everybody. Thanks so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. For this episode of Jim's Velt, I talked with former Washington Post Moscow Bureau Chief and Pulitzer Prize winning author David E. Hoffman. David has an encyclopedic amount of knowledge when it comes to the Cold War and U.S.-Soviet relations. We talk about new declassified documents that have just recently been released that reveals for the first time just how close the Soviets and the Americans actually came to nuclear war in 1983. We discuss the dead hand and the Russian perimeter system that is straight out of James Cameron's Terminator. I mean, it's just like Skynet. It's crazy. We talk about how a lowly Soviet lieutenant colonel saved the world from nuclear annihilation by not listening to a malfunctioning Soviet computer that was telling him to launch their missiles. We talk about a top-secret American spy who saved the U.S. $2 billion in 10 years of research and development by giving them incredible amounts of information about Soviet radar technology. And we finish up with talking about the Soviet Biological Weapons Program. If tales of nuclear annihilation doesn't scare the hell out of you, then how the Soviets were creating weaponized super germs and tons of anthrax, I'm sure they will. David was really generous with his time. I can't thank him enough. And all what we're talking about here is completely real. This is no bullshit. This stuff actually happened, which is just amazing to think about in retrospect. So here it is, my talk with David E. Hoffman. So 1983, was that the closest that the United States and the Soviet Union came to nuclear war? No, the closest was in, 19, in the 1960s in the Cuban Missile Crisis. You think that was even worse than the situation? Because in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the crazy Khrushchev had actually sent the warheads on ships to Cuba. The missiles were being assembled in Cuba. Those missiles had range to hit the United States. Um, that was the closest we ever came. It was a nutty, um, absolutely irrational crisis. And I think Kennedy's great credit, he kind of stood it down. But it had lasting impact. One of the impacts on the Soviet leadership was a real sense of sort of defeat and determination never to be humiliated like that again. And so quietly, but um, with increasing earnestness and resources in the 70s, they began to build like crazy. I mean, build nuclear missiles. So by the time you get to the 1980s and 1983, um, the Cold War has changed a lot. Um, by 1983, we were in the age of hair trigger alert. We were in a period where both countries had uh, created nuclear missile forces that could be launched in a matter of minutes once the National Command Authority gave the order. So what happened in 1983 was that the United States and NATO carried out a exercise that they carry out every year. Uh, ABLE, right? Called, called ABLE Archer. Now, ABLE Archer was what's called a nuclear command post exercise. It's a test or an exercise, a series of events, people move around simulating the escalation to nuclear war, but it stops at the minute that the button would be pressed. Able Archer was scheduled for November, but you have to know what comes before. So in the summer of 1983, the United States carried out the largest Pacific Ocean exercise ever. It was called Fleet X-83, and it involved three carrier battle groups. That's the size of a force for an exercise that hadn't been used in, in decades. And these three carrier battle groups made a big counterclockwise sweep through the Pacific Ocean. And the idea was to be provocative. The idea was to force the Soviets to react. 
to turn on their radars to see how they would react. It was really just a jab between their eyes. And they were sort of asleep when the thing first happened, and they did got caught off guard a little bit. Strangely, the captain's logs of the of some of the ships suggest that they didn't react at all. They just were quietly watching. And then finally they did react sort of angrily. So this is the scene in the summer of eighty in the summer of eighty-three. Now, on September first, a Korean airliner's jetliner was flying from um, the United States to Seoul, and it strayed off course. Somebody had misset the autopilot to fly a direct line to Seoul, which took it partly across the Soviet Union. It was not a huge mistake, but it was enough of one that the plane crossed the flight path of an American spy plane. It's called an RC-135. It was a standard spy plane watching for missile launches and so on. Well, the RC-135 headed home, but the Soviets didn't see that. And they thought the Boeing was the RC-135, which they had been tracking. So the, um, because of the panic of Fleet X-83 the previous summer, and because everybody was like on edge, also because the Soviet early warning system was breaking down, it was so rusty that some of the guys involved in this thing had to like call the local operator to get through. They didn't have dedicated <laughs> lines. And in oh. one case, the operator said, hold on. And she put the guy on hold and he's pounding the phone saying, I got to get through, I got to get through. And she says, sorry, sir, they're not answering. <laughs> I'm sorry, we're a little busy here. You've right. got to get me a Anyway, so line. they shot down the Korean airliner and killed all aboard. And again, this created enormous tension uh, between the United States and Soviet Union. And that killed a U.S. congressman on board, Larry McDonald. Yeah, so the U.S. congressman was on board. And a number of Americans were on board, too. A few Americans, but, mm. but still, the, that was the, the idea that the Soviets would shoot down a civilian airliner. Um, at the, we didn't know it on the first days of that crisis that uh, RC-135 had been in the vicinity, and we certainly didn't understand at the time that the Soviet early warning and radar system was such a disaster that it was falling apart. But anyway, let me continue, because sure. then in the autumn, two things were about to happen. One thing was that the Able Archer exercise was being planned, but also in early November, the NATO was planning to deploy a set of missiles aimed at the Soviet Union that they've been talking about since 1979, the so-called intermediate-range nuclear forces. These were the Pershing-2 missiles, a modified U.S. nuclear-armed missile that could fly very fast toward the Soviet Union, and ground-launched cruise missiles, which would fly very low and were hard to detect. And they were being deployed that November because the Soviet Union had set up a bunch of missiles called the Pioneers, the SS-20 aimed at Europe in the 70s. So it was just a tit for tat, but everything was getting very tense. So essentially, a new arms race was unfolding on the European continent, and Abel Archer was about to happen. So at the time, we knew very little about how the Soviet Union reacted to it. Now, however, very recently, a report's come out which reveals a lot of new intelligence information about how the Soviets did react. They thought that two things. A nuclear attack on them might come in disguise of an exercise, and that it, that the only way for them to respond to it was not to wait to be attacked, but to hit first, to preempt it. They did all kinds of alert things that were not really evident to us. So in Europe, they stood down all military aviation for 10 days. There were no planes flying. Why? They needed those planes ready to go in case they were going to have an attack. Whoa. So, you know, how close did we come? It was in Cuba. But we've since learned, and we learned only in recent months, 
from the release of some of these details that the Soviet reaction to Abel Archer suggests there really was a war scare in the autumn of 83. And that, the, you know, there are some people in the CIA who have said, ah, oh, no, we had everything under control. We know their recipe books. We know, you know, we're watching their kitchen. They, there were no pots and pans clanging around. It was all bullshit. Well, it wasn't. It was, I think now, if you read these reports, there's a pretty strong case to be made that the people who are sanguine and calm about this were not looking in the right place. The Soviets overreacted maybe a little bit to Abel Archer, but they definitely reacted. The war scare was for real. Reagan, who learned about some of this stuff, he learned about it when he was still alive. I only learned about it recently, but I wrote some about it in my book, The Dead Hand. But Reagan also was really alarmed at how they seemed to misunderstand the United States in the autumn of 83. And he just had a much more realistic sense of how inferior and scared and, and spooked the Soviets were after that experience. So in some ways, it changed history. And it's a really important turning point in the Cold War. Sorry for that long answer. No, 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 no. That's, that's, that's awesome, man. Um, do you think Reagan had an idea that outspending the Soviet Union would put them under? Yeah, that was national policy. Really? I mean, Reagan signed several directives that sort of said, you know, American technology is superior, our strength is superior, if we, we're going we're gonna to race them um, to the end. Now, some people believed, and certainly if you'd asked me, I might have said too, in 1982, that that was a little bit ridiculous. The Soviet Union seemed to be quite stable then, quite powerful. They devoted a lot of their resources, of which they had a fair amount, to defense spending, much more than we did. But as a strategy, this wasn't just some bizarre thing of a few advisors. Reagan believed that. Mm. All right, so uh, let's talk about the dead hand. When I read it, the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, the Cuban Missile Crisis was overrated. <laughs> and then the second thing I thought was James Cameron, he's a communist. I mean, what you were describing was Skynet. I mean, it was unbelievable, this whole perimeter system, this Russian perimeter system with the false alarms and everything. It's, it's so incredible that this actually thing existed. So the false alarm, which is what opens the book, simply tells the story of a man um, on a Saturday night. He took over the duty watch at a Russian early warning station. This was an early warning station south of Moscow whose job was to monitor satellites and to be on the alert for any potential um, nuclear missile launch from the United States. And he wasn't even supposed to be working that night. Right. He was just he was more of an algorithm guy. He was a designer. He wasn't really a duty officer, but he took the shift. Maybe a friend of his got sick. Who knows why? His name was Stanislav Petrov. And uh, that night, partway through the evening, the system showed a missile launch from the United States. So they had a big computer. This big computer, the M1 computer, sorted out the signals from the satellite. And the computer would make decisions. Oh, that's bullshit. This is good. That's bad. This is good. So by the time the signal got to Petrov, the computer had said, hey, this might be for real. But he thought, you know, why would the United States launch just one missile at us? You know, I'd always been, he'd always been trained that if there's going to be a nuclear missile attack, there'd be more. So he's sitting there wondering sort of what to do. And then suddenly the big board in front of him broke up in a big red letters that said launch again start and this time that thing didn't happen unless more than one missile was coming and uh -oh. this time it said five oh. and so 
you know, he said that he felt that his legs lost all feeling, like he was sitting on a frying pan. He was scared out of his wits. But again, he thought, why would they launch just five? And as he went back and checked visually and looked at everything and had all his guys on the floor spread out in front of him, do all the checking, he concluded it was a false alarm. Jim, he concluded this entirely based on gut instinct. Wow. That, see, and that he is called unbelievable. his boss and said, we have this alert, but I think it's a false alarm. This guy, he could have interpreted it as a first strike attack. If he had interpreted that way, then when he made that call, it would have gone up to the next level. And at the next level, there, there might have been somebody else manning a radar. Um, radars have uh, ability to detect missiles too, but they see it much later than the satellites. So it might have been 20 minutes of panic, and then the radar man might have said, I don't see anything. Or And there are different levels. It, it's not really clear what would have happened if he had said we're under attack, but it would certainly have been more alarming than to say it's a false alarm. Right. And this is all about mutually assured destruction. That is like, to me, is the most asinine human. I mean, of all the billions of dollars, that's the best they could have come up with. You shoot your missiles, we'll shoot ours. If you're thinking back, it just is ridiculous. Let me tell you a little secret about mutual assured destruction. This idea that both sides had their missiles aimed at each other, it certainly took hold in common culture, and, and it was true. But there's a part about the way they were aimed that most people don't understand. Most people think that, you know, we aimed ours at Moscow, they aimed theirs at New York, and we all quavered and quivered under the threat of nuclear war. In fact, 90-some percent of the missiles were aimed at each other's missiles, and 10 percent, a small number, were aimed at cities. Right. In other words, where we had the pistol aimed at the other guy's pistol, you're going to we were trying to shoot it out of his hand. That took 90 percent of our effort and to threaten the population only took 10 percent. Well, my point is that perhaps we could have had the same mutual assured destruction with only 10 percent of the nuclear missiles. We got to 60,000 at the peak of the Cold War, 60,000 warheads. That's just crazy. And, and a large number, many thousands of them were just aimed at the other guy's pistol. Part of the reason that these two, the Soviets and the United States, hated each other was there was, there was no real actionable intelligence. They were, they were paranoid out of an ignorance. And for years, it was always the criticism of the CIA that they didn't have somebody in Moscow. They didn't have a good agent or, or person on the ground there that was able to figure out what the Soviets were doing. But you found information to suggest differently. This book was just published. It's called The Billion Dollar Spy. And it's the true story of one espionage operation right in the middle of the period we're talking about in the early 1980s, in which the United States ran a spy in Moscow right under the nose of the KGB. And this particular spy was very productive. He brought the United States information about Soviet military research and development, especially radars that they'd never seen before. And the book tells the story about how the CIA ran this operation, how the spy volunteered. He was a Russian radar engineer, how he was handled on the streets of Moscow, the trade craft, and then ultimately how he was betrayed. On the website, you have all these declassified briefs and bulletins in between different CIA people. How did you find this stuff? I worked for several years to persuade the CIA to declassify to me the operations cables about running this spy. The operation took six years, 
took me a couple of years to get them to do it. They scrubbed them and, you know, redacted stuff. And then they one day handed over to me 944 pages of declassified documents. Now, some of those pages were blank. And, you know, <laughs> some days I was sort of wondering what the hell's going on. But by combing them for details, and th I took that information. And then I went out and found the case officers who ran the agent and the chiefs of station in Moscow and the guys at headquarters. So I, I tried to rebuild the story from the ground up. But the CIA materials all dealt with the actual operation, which was running the spy, document photography, meetings, communications, tradecraft. But it didn't deal with the secrets that he stole. Because remember, espionage is about stealing secrets. Mm. No other way to put it. And I had to go report that separately. And that was a hard target for me because... A lot of this stuff is still classified. But I had to, for myself, come to some understanding. Was this spy any good? Was this information useful? And I think compared to some other spy stories, what makes the book compelling, what makes the story compelling, is this is a case of a agent who really delivered. This was important stuff. He saved something like the United States government $2 billion. In research and development, because they knew what the Soviet secret military defense plans were for the coming decade. And that would save a lot of time and money. Why did this guy do this? So it's the most important question. Tolkachev was a young man. He was 14 years old when Germany uh, bombed Moscow, when the Nazi forces finally attacked the Soviet Union and bombed Moscow. Moscow was a city made of wood back then. There were a lot of wood structures, and uh, the Luftwaffe dropped uh, large amount of incendiary bombs starting huge fires. Night after night, the German planes hit Moscow. How? Why were they getting through? The reason is that Soviet Union had only very primitive radar. The radar was a new technology in the 1930s, and the Soviet radars were so bad that they couldn't easily detect even the altitude or the velocity of the oncoming planes. The Soviet Union badly needed new radar. One thing we know about the Soviet system is when they needed something, you know, they threw everything into it. This became Adolf Tolkachev's life story. He went to a high school. His sole purpose was to study electronics and radar. And right after that, they sent him to the equivalent of a university. And the whole training was based on radar. And when he came out of university in the 1950s, they sent him immediately to their best secret military Research Institute on Radar in the middle of Moscow. And by the 50s in the Cold War, radar was not just some, you know, ground-based dish circling around, but also was very important for fighter planes, for air defenses. It was really a, a major leg of the entire Cold War confrontation was radar. So Tolkachev met a young woman at the Institute. Her name was Natasha Kuzmina. And uh, Natasha had a really, really difficult life. Um, both of her parents had been repressed by Stalin. Her mother was executed. Her father sent to the Gulag. She grew up as an orphan. And she met and married Tolkachev, but shared with him privately her pain at what Stalin had done to her family. So they carried that pain around together, I think, in that anger at the Stalin's great terror. But by the late 1960s, Tolkachev, having now spent his entire career in radar, um, began to get really discouraged. First of all, by the late 60s, the Soviet system was grinding into a period known as stagnation. You know, you couldn't buy a pair of blue jeans to save your life. Bread, you had to wait in line for. A pair of shoes, you might wait 10 hours in the line for. So Tolkachev began to get angry at the present and the past. 
He was mad at what they had done to Natasha's family, but he was also very, very um, angry at what was happening to all around him every day. And he thought he wanted to do something, but on the other hand, he didn't. You know, he was kind of a conformist. He had a good job. He worked at this prestigious institute. He was working his way up. He didn't want his family to suffer like Natasha had suffered. And I have to tell you, you know, there were millions and millions of Soviet citizens who suffered in the purges of Stalin. There were millions, tens of millions, who were unhappy as he was with the way things were going in the country. They didn't act on it. Tolkachev decided he had to act on it. And he waited and waited to try and think of what to do. At one point, he thought, I'll go out and distribute pamphlets on the street. But then, of course, he realized that within five minutes, he would have been yeah, arrested. Yeah, that ain't going to work, bro. That didn't work. <laughs> so um, he, he was sitting around in the September of 1976, twiddling the dial on a shortwave radio, listening to the voice of America. And the voice of America was sometimes jammed, but sometimes it got through. And he heard a broadcast from Japan. The broadcast was about how a Soviet fighter pilot flying the ultra-fast and mysterious MiG-25 had flown the plane right out of an exercise in the, in the Soviet Far East to Japan and landed it on a civilian airstrip and defected. And the pilot said he wanted a million dollars and he wanted asylum in the United States, which he got. Of course, this plane was a big intelligence windfall for the West. Tolkachev, when he heard about this, he realized that he had exactly in his desk drawer at work what he needed to get back at the Soviet system. He would do what Belenko did. He would deliver an intelligence windfall to the West. No, he wasn't going to fly out of the country, believe me. He was not going to leave the country. He was going to defect in place by giving the top secret information about that plane and other planes to the West because that MiG-25 that the pilot flew and landed in Japan, guess who had designed its radar? He did? Adolf Tolkachov. Wow, so he was he the guy. He knew everything about that plane. He said, well, if they'll pay that guy a million dollars and give him <laughs> shit, then just think of the stuff I could deliver. I'm going to get my own McDonald's franchise. Yeah. And this takes balls, you know, for someone to do this to go, especially if you want to stay in, in place. I mean, the MiG-25 pilot, he just flew out of that. He just flew away. Tolkachov uh, tried to approach the CIA and to make a, a long story short, you know, the CIA first didn't want to talk to him. They were very afraid Tolkachev memorized three sentences. He wrote a note, and four months after the, after the defection of that pilot, he showed up at a gas station and approached an American refueling his car. And Tolkachev said in the first sentence that he had memorized, are you an American? And the man said yes. And then Tolkachev said, can we talk? And the man said it would be difficult. And then he left a note on the front seat of the car and turned and walked away. But what he didn't realize is that he had just approached the chief of station of the CIA in Moscow. Is that just pure luck that he did that? Purely luck. That's crazy. And you talk about it in the prologue. There was a point where the CIA lost contact with him for a Jim, while. Jim, let's not give this away. Okay, but, but the prologue's on. The prologue's on the thing. You know, come on. It's on the website. You guys could read it. It's the first four pages. They use, they use a sex doll. It's great. This was a case in which to uh, evade the KGB, they were everywhere watching and they had lost Tokachov, and another meeting was coming up. So the CIA decided they had to somehow escape the KGB surveillance so they could meet him. They had a device called the Jack in the Box. And this device was normally looked like a suitcase, but it could be concealed. In this case, they concealed it under a fake 
birthday cake. The top of the cake was made of plastic, but it looked like a birthday cake. <laughs> and four Americans <laughs> left crazy. the American embassy in Moscow in a car after having made some very conspicuous calls saying they were going to a birthday party. And as they drove out of the embassy, one of them held the birthday cake on her lap. But the guy in the front seat, not the driver, but in the passenger seat, was a case officer. And um, at one point, the car whipped around a turn, and the KGB car that was trailing them was left in the shadows. The guy in the front seat hopped out. He was now dressed as a Russian man, an old Russian man. He had a very sophisticated mask on. It was, a, called a, it was a mask that completely changed the look of his face to make him look like an old Russian man. He took one step, two steps, three steps, and by the third step, the car sped off. In the back seat, one of the women who was sitting there with the birthday cake put it back on the front seat where he'd been sitting and pulled the lever. Out of the birthday cake popped up a cardboard image of the guy as if he was still sitting in the front seat, had a little movable head. So if you were in the KGB and you were trailing them and you were looking 50 yards ahead, it looked like he was still in the car. And the KGB car whipped around the corner again and caught up with them past that old man on the street who they didn't notice. Wow. And man. then went shooting down, trying to chase the CIA car with the cardboard jack-in-the-box in the front seat. Unbelievable, man. So what's even scarier than the nuclear issues and the, the false alarms was the Soviet biological weapons program that the stuff that you uncovered about bioprepareance and all that. Can you just talk a little bit about how extensive and involved this Soviet biological weapons program had gotten during the Cold War? The Soviet Union built the largest biological weapons program mankind has ever known. There was a revolution in the life sciences beginning in the 1970s. This revolution is undergoing today, but still <laughs> happening at remarkable speed even now. But in the early 1970s, the Soviets, for a long time, they liked the Americans. We had a biological program, uh, weapons program in America, too. In 1969, our president, Richard Nixon, for reasons that he never really explained very well, ended the American Biological Weapons Program. He just basically said, I'm turning it off, I'm shutting it down. So Nixon ended our program and called on the Soviet Union to do the same. And a treaty was prepared banning biological weapons with both the United States and Soviet Union signed. But in secret, the Soviet leaders thought Nixon was lying. They thought that the American Biological Weapons Program was just hidden, that it was going on in university labs or someplace else. So they started their own biological weapons program secretly, even after signing the treaty. And this program started up just about the time that this revolution in life sciences was unfolding. That revolution was the discovery of the double helix, right? Right, DNA. The discovery really happened earlier, but the whole idea that you could manipulate DNA, and it was very crude at the time, but in the early 70s, this was you know really becoming more and more of a reality. And so in a sort of second phase, not only did the Soviet leaders start a program of germ warfare based on known natural pathogens, they started a program to fool around with genetic engineering in biological weapons. They really began this effort in the late 70s, mid to late 70s. But they went on to build the largest biological weapons program mankind has ever seen, including production facilities to make tons, I said tons, of anthrax enough to wipe out millions of people. Um, they experimented with lots of different kinds of genetic 
um, alterations to pathogens. I don't think they ever got very successful at it at that, but they sure were trying. And you know, the United States had kept a few samples and eventually did shut down our program by the early 1970s. And all the way through the 70s, there were a few hints along the way that Soviets were doing this, but we never got any real intelligence until the end of the Cold War. And then we realized what they had done. I mean, they were building, I mean, weaponizing small parks, making designer germs, anti-resistant to antibiotics, anti-resistant to vaccines. They were making super viruses. They were trying. They were trying. It's not really clear today because... You know, there's never been an accounting for this program. There's never been a commission. They've never opened up the books. It's all still secret. So we don't really know how far did they get. We don't. We, we have some ideas, and there are now several books about it. But I, I think that there's, since there's never been an accounting, everybody's a little bit unsure. And I think we'll stop right there. Jimsville Podcast is available on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and on iTunes. If you like these tales of super germs and nuclear annihilation, Please share them with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. Thanks again. I really appreciate you guys listening. This is Jim. Peace.